the Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Kohler's Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to the Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Merwin Girard's study of a man pursued. Dead Man's Tale. Starring George Maharis. Craig Stevens. And Charles McGraw. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. It has been four years since Carl Brooks ran from the Delta Hotel after finding an empty briefcase and a dead man. In the interim, he fashioned a new life in a new town and met a girl he'd like to marry. But then he returned to discover his best friend had been executed by the state for the murder. And nothing was right. Things were not as they should have been. Nobody seemed to care that two innocent men were dead. Perhaps because life goes on. But for Carl Brooks, life cannot go on this way. He wants to know why it has. And the more he learns, the more obstacles he meets, the closer he comes to the truth, the more dangerous things become for him. And yet, he goes on. Even though for Carl Brooks, the price for uncovering the whole truth may well be his life. The conclusion of Dead Man's Tale, coming up after this word. It was the note from Jenny that first made me suspect something was wrong. The phone call to the airport was really just a reaction. Loose ends, bits, pieces, and hunches. Once a lawyer, always a lawyer, I supposed. I sat in the phone booth, just staring at the dial for quite some time. My mind was swimming, and for a moment, I was Charles Barrows again, back in Coulter, by the lake, walking arm in arm with Jenny. Then I looked away and saw the reflection in the glass door of Carl Brooks and Caden careening back to reality. Jenny's note, and the message to call Dr. Irwin. County General Hospital. Dr. Frank Irwin, please. Dr. Irwin is recovering from an accident and cannot be disturbed. We're referring his calls to Dr. Daniels. Uh, look, you, you don't understand. I'm returning his call. I'm sorry, sir. Dr. Irwin is asleep. Could you call back in the morning? Look, this is an emergency. I'm sorry, sir. Doctor is ill. Call in the morning. Damn. Hugo. Carl, where are you? They've snatched Jenny. Who? Jenny. Who's Jenny? Didn't I tell you? Jenny's the girl I met in California. Hugo, she, she's why I came back. I mean, she's my new life. She came into town last night and was going to fly back tonight, hey, but I... Oh, oh, hold on. Slow down. 
You lost me. Well, but they know she's here. I I'm sure it's a ploy to get rid of me before... Oh, will you calm down? <sighs> all right, all right. Now, what I can make of your babbling, you, uh, you think Ferris kidnapped Jenny in order to flush you out, right? Right, that's right. Wrong. And I'll tell you why. If Ferris had her, I'd know about it. I've got every informer in town reporting in on the hour, and no one said a word about a woman. This is the first I've heard of her. Believe me, Carl, you've got enough real troubles without making up others. She's around. She'll show up. And if I were you, I'd stay put. Mercer and Ferris are in conference right now. But I have to get the county general. What's up? I don't know, but I have a feeling the whole ball game's on the line. Well, you better get going. It's the bottom of the ninth. If I was ever going to run, now would be the time. I tried to believe what Hugo said about Jenny, but I couldn't shake her disappearance from my mind. I left word at the desk to reroute any calls to meet at the Chronicle City Desk. I got as far as the corridor in the hospital before a nurse stopped me. Uh, just where do you think you're going? I have to see Dr. Irwin. Keep your voice down. People are sleeping. Visiting hours are over. Look, a man's life is at stake. I'm sorry. Hospital regulations. But Dr. Irwin... What are you doing out of bed? I want to see that man. But, Doctor... I take full responsibility, nurse. Well, I guess it's all right. But please get back into bed. Hey, Mr. Brooks, come on in. Thank you, nurse. Mr. Brooks. Mr. Brooks, I'm, I'm a troubled man. Well, what is it, Doctor? Well, it's about Ellen Wilson. Go on. Ellen's been like a daughter to Edna and me. We, we were never blessed with children of our own. Well, I, I worry about her, you know. Like a father worries about his little girl. Then, Katie, well, she's my little sugar plum. She tells me how she wishes I were her grandpa. You see, Ellen's parents are, well, they're not the nicest people. Well, to get to the point, Mr. Brooks, I called Ellen this morning to see how she was feeling. She said she was very upset about the trouble you were making for them. And she was sending Katie away to stay with her parents for a while. Now, Mr. Brooks, I'm... I'm afraid what I have to tell you now may cause me to break another oath. The confidence between physician and patient. What Dr. Irwin told me not only broke an oath, but broke the ice around my frozen memory. I was so close to feeling free once and for all. But there were still things to check out, and one very important locked door yet to be opened. been spotted. The chase was on. I pushed the accelerator to the floor and drove for all I was worth. I had to get to the busy, well-lit street so I'd never have a chance to prove what I knew. The neon sign atop the Chronicle building loomed up ahead. If I could only make it. I looked in the rearview mirror and the car following me was gone. Vanished. I parked the car right out in front. The big glass doors were unlocked with no guard in sight. I made a beeline for the city desk. Yes? Where's Hugo? Well, he just ran out not five minutes ago. Well, where did he go? He didn't say. Well, he must have said something. I mean, he just wouldn't take off like a bat out of hell. Well, pardon my asking, but who are you? Brooks. Carl Brooks. Why? I thought that's who you were. Mr. Brownell described you as a very nervous 28-year-old man. Oh, I fit the description, don't I? You're the only one I'm to give this message to. 
It says, Carl, don't do anything. Don't go anywhere. Just got a call from Jenny Duncan. It seemed like every time I tied off a loose end, it knotted up. There was a question mark at the end of each answer. One more hunch. A faint recollection needed satisfaction. I had to get into the newspaper morgue just once more. Surely the woman at the city desk was most cordial, but had no access to the files. Nobody on the night shift could get them but Hugo. And Hugo was gone, ostensibly to locate Jenny. His cryptic message did nothing to make me any less nervous, but he may have had a reason to prevent me from leaving the safety of the building. He knew I'd follow if I knew where he'd gone. I took it all to mean that the summit conference between Mercer and Farris was over and war had been declared on Carl Brooks. I couldn't bring myself to sit it out. I was wearing out the linoleum in the city room when Shirley put down her magazine. Uh, would you like some coffee, Mr. Brooks? Oh, no, no, thanks. I could send out for a sandwich from the diner. Look, I'm, I'm really not hungry. Well, would you like to look at a magazine? Oh, oh, I know. There's a stack of old newspapers behind Mr. Brownell's desk that you might enjoy reading. What did you say? I said there's a stack of old newspapers behind Mr. Brownell's... But this is it. This is what I came for. Wasn't sure. Did you find something, Mr. Brooks? Shirley, I wonder if you'd do me a favor? Certainly. Lend me your car for just one hour. The guard was at his station by the glass doors downstairs. We exchanged bewildered looks as I left. If I was followed to the Delta Hotel, someone did a good job of keeping out of sight. I slipped through the crowded lobby into the elevator and rode up. To the fifth floor. Down the corridor, to the door to my room, and beyond, until I got to the locked door outside what used to be room 515. If only I could get inside. Robert Henley's old room was filled with furniture. Desks piled atop one another, chairs, dressing tables, rolled carpets... I blinked furiously as the dust rose from the floor, and I, I tried to remember how it was, how it had been that fateful night four years ago. Where in this room, under all this, would someone hide $150,000? Again, I recreated that horrible night, but this time in slow motion. Whatever it was, I had missed it before. I closed the door to 515, walked down the hallway and opened the door to the stairwell. Ten sets of switchback stairs, two sets per floor. Nothing but concrete. Then the turn towards the lobby and, and here I am. What is it? Where is it? Of course. Of course. Of course. The desk clerk was most cooperative. Fifty dollars was a cheap price to pay for what I had found. A positive proof to set me free at last. But it didn't last long. I started the car, and the moment I pulled away from the curb, I had company again. 
I got a good look this time. It was a pickup truck with a single hatless man inside. From the angle of the headlights, I could tell this was my vanishing friend. Then, coming from the other direction, the big maroon touring car. I made a hard turn onto the frontage road leading to the residential track homes. The pickup made the turn, but the big car missed it. I was nearing my destination when... No, I can't be out of gas. Come on, Brooks. Get in. Hurry. Owen Morris. Morris, what the hell are you doing out here? I said you can count on me, remember? Tonight, at the hospital, at the first time you saw me? You mean you've been following me? Most of two days. Uh Uh-oh, you better tell me where we're going. We're not the only ones on the road. Barnsdale Lane, you know where it is? Ought to, I paved the road. Hang on. Helen Wilson's, right? Right. That's it, the one with the tall grass. This is going to be close. Well, then, we've got to get to the house. It looks like the string's finally run out. It follows a pattern. There's no avoiding it. What? It's only a matter of time. You can run away or try to escape inside yourself. Moss, will you stay back? They won't shoot unless they're sure we're here. You can't run forever. And if you turn it inside, you end up on the slide. Either way, it's the same thing. So the faster you get there, the better. Get back. I'm cold, Brooks. My teeth are chattering. Here, here. Take my coat. Thank you. (sighs) Pretty good fit. Please, keep still. I'm counting on you, Morse. I know. That's why I've got to do this. Morse, no! Wait, come back here! Carl, Carl! It had to come to this. I saw the whole thing. You'll never get away with it. Who is this man? Jenny! Jenny, I was worried sick. Carl! That's Owen Morse. They thought... Well, it's obvious what they thought. They got the wrong man. killer struck once too often. Forgive me for lying to you, Carl. I had to speak to Ellen about us. I tried to reach you. Sorry it took me so long to get here. Yeah, where were you? I got a flat tire. Came right off the rim. At least I got the story. Well, don't put your pencil away just yet, Hugo. I'll get coffee. Uh, No, Ellen. I want you to hear this. I want you all to hear what really happened four years ago. All right. Shoot. Okay. Farris found me in Henley's room just after I discovered the body. He accused me of murder and asked me where the money was. That's typical to frame you. No, he really believed it. I panicked and hit him and then ran down the stairs to the lobby. Henley's killer used those same stairs to escape. So Ferris could have done it and come back up in time to find you in the room. He could have. It was Ferris, right? Wrong, Hugo, and I'll tell you why. At that time, Ferris, Mercer, and three others knew there'd be money in that room. The other contributors, Morse, Lacey... And Irwin. Not those three. They knew about the money, but not where it was or who had it. Oh. Mercer was at uh, election headquarters that night. I know. Mercer never saw the money. Someone else knew Henley was carrying $150,000. It was so obvious that no one even thought of suspecting him. Who, Carl? Henley. Henley didn't kill himself. Mercer gave me the idea this morning when he threatened to prosecute me for conspiring with Barry to rob and kill Henley. Complicity. Henley didn't kill himself, and he couldn't rob himself either. He had to have told someone, someone he knew. Henley was from out of state. 
He was chosen for the job because he had no connections with anyone. No visible connections with anyone. That's what made it so hard to figure out, even though it's obvious who it was. Who was it? Barry Wilson. Are you saying Barry did kill Henley? The killer was still in the building the whole time I was, on the same stairs I ran down on my way to the lobby. You mean you went right by him? No, the stairs go further. He was waiting below, by the boiler room, by an exit I didn't know existed until later. But you saw him arrive when you were leaving. When I left the hotel, I did see Barry, but I didn't see him arrive. He was running down the sidewalk along the west wing of the building, at about the spot where the door by the boiler room opens. That's incredible. That's ridiculous. That's what happened, although it wasn't part of the original plan. Henley and Barry had it all set up. Barry was to go to the hotel room, tie up Henley, make it look like a robbery, and hide the money to be split later when things cooled off. Mercer almost blew the whole thing by sending me to pick up the documents. Barry lessened in on the intercom, and that's when he decided to cross Henley. I'd be the perfect alibi, and the obvious suspect, not only for robbery, but first-degree murder. And it would have worked if you hadn't run. Not quite. What Barry didn't plan on was the fact that Henley crossed him, too. Hey, you lost me. Henley and Barry were acquaintances, but they never really trusted each other. There was too much at stake. Henley was well prepared for a double cross. Eh, obviously not well enough. He never had a chance to use what he had, or rather, didn't have. What are you talking about? The money. There never was any money up in that room. The briefcase was empty when Barry broke it open. You mean there was no money? None. None that Barry ever saw. Five people knew there was money, who had it, and where it was supposed to be. Farris, Mercer, Henley, Barry, and one other person. Yeah, but who else could have known? The only person who knew both Barry and Henley. The only person who went back to the boiler room to look for the money where Barry was supposed to have hidden it. But it wasn't there. Was it, Ellen? No, it wasn't. I never saw a penny of it. It was all for nothing. How did you find out? Well, I needed help. I spoke to Dr. Irwin this evening. There was something else Barry didn't know. Dr. Irwin told you. Well, he didn't mean to give you away. He was only concerned about you and Katie. Hey, uh, I don't know what's going on here. Ellen, you tell him. It's your story. The whole truth came out that evening. I had asked Dr. Irwin more about Katie's grandparents. If he didn't approve of Ellen's parents, surely Barry's folks were nice enough. That was when the doctor revealed to me what even Barry didn't know. Since Barry's death, Ellen had refused to allow Katie to visit the Wilsons. When I asked the doctor why, he told me there was no way Barry could have been Katie's father. He was sterile. That led me back to the newspaper accounts on the trial. While looking through the files with Hugo for the fourth contributor, I read something about Henley's hometown, a small hamlet in Indiana. It hadn't occurred to me that it was the same town where Ellen Upshaw had come from years ago, and the very same town where Barry and Ellen used to go on vacations before Katie was born. It just took a little while to make the connection. Then, the final proof, the money. And that was the most obvious thing of all. Where would someone in, in a hotel keep $150,000 in cash? The 50 I had laid on the desk clerk brought me access to the hotel safe where I found a four-year-old package and a notarized letter that was, in effect, a man's will. It read, If this package is not claimed within 30 days, the contents shall be used to establish a fund to be dispersed on the 21st birthday of my daughter, Catherine Wilson. It was signed, 
Robert L. Henley. Jenny and I caught the morning flight to the coast. Late that afternoon, we drove to the lake. Carl, what's going to happen to Ellen Wilson now? Well, Hugo didn't print the story. It wouldn't serve any purpose. Harris will be put away for the murder of Owen Morse. What about Mercer? As usual, Mercer's in the clear. He judged Barry as guilty for all the wrong reasons, but he did convict the right man. So I guess they'll all live happily ever after. Bet you can't throw a pebble through the ring. Bet I can. See? Mm-hmm. Here. Try this ring. Oh, Carl. I've been holding on to it for months. Don't you think it's time we made it official? Hello, this is Susan Strasberg. I'll be here next week on the Hollywood Radio Theater's New Zero Hour Mystery with Peter Marshall, Andrew Doug, and Mary Wicks and Kent Smith. He's been getting a series of poison pen letters ever since his wife left him last January. Hate mail? Uh-huh. I heard Mrs. Wharton just disappeared. Nobody knows where she is. Hey, you want to read it? You may think you can get away with your wife's murder, Rudolph Wharton, but you can't. Remember to listen next week when the Zero Hour presents A Die in the Country. Thank you. That concludes this week's production of the Zero Hour, Merwin Gerard's Dead Man's Tale. Next week, we'll begin another exciting dramatization of a tale of mystery and suspense. We'll tell our story in five days, at the same time Monday through Friday. So on Monday, rest your eyes and listen here to the Zero Hour. been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Dead Man's Tale was written by Mervyn Gerard and Kim Weisskopf. George Maharis was Carl, Craig Stevens was Mercer, and Charles McGraw was Ferris. Featured in the cast were Sandra Gould, Herbert Jefferson Jr., Carol Gould, Barbara Luddy, Olin Soleil, Anne Marshall, and Angela Cartwright. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in Monday and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour.